Morning. I wonder how many of us here remember that, uh, remember watching the 2012 London Olympic Games? Anyone? Well, did you know, in fact, it's probably a pretty insignificant anniversary to remember, but did you know tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the end of the London Olympic Games? Now, uh, again, pretty insignificant, I know, but for my wife and I, we loved watching the London Games. In fact, I don't remember when, prior to those games, I had been so engrossed in following the Olympics. Melissa and I and my two boys, we pretty much made it a a family event. Every night, we stayed home as much as possible throughout those few weeks of the games last year to catch as many as possible. Even on one of those nights when it's a sporting event, we didn't really care much to see. We still had it on in the background, so to speak. But all those those glorious nights when the traditional sporting events, as we might call it, gymnastics, track and field, and swimming came, came on, Melissa and I were absolutely glued to the TV, probably with many of you. It's been said that the Olympics are where a moment on the medal stand representing 300 million people is beyond price. Now, having said that, that might in fact be a priceless experience if in fact you're good enough to actually make it to the medal stand. But most Olympians pay a staggering price to even make it to the games, much less the medal stand. Most have exhibited unbelievable self-sacrifice, self-denial, and endured great pain and loss for the sake of competing on such a high level. Just listen to some of these inspiring examples of sacrifice. Gabby Douglas, that American gymnast who captured all of our hearts, right? Well, Gabby started training at age six in gymnastics. By the age of eight, just two years later, she had become the Virginia State all-round gymnastics champion. Her grandmother tells of the great sacrifice that Gabby had to make when, barely a teenager, she made the decision to move away from her home in Virginia to move to Iowa to move in with a host family, complete strangers to her, a host family, for the sake of training under an Olympic-level coach. Also, we remember the name Usain Bolt, right? That charismatic Jamaican track and field star. Well, Usain Bolt speaks about how he had to make the conscious decision not to hang out with his friends who would often entice him to go hang out in the clubs in Jamaica. Instead, Bolt would train long hours each day and allow his body to rest at night because he knew that was going to be the only recipe for success in his life. He also speaks about how he constantly has to buffet his body and deal with a chronic back injury for the sake of succeeding. Michael Phelps, now a household name the world over, right? Said this of the sacrifices he made throughout his life. Growing up in high school, I wasn't hanging out with my friends every day or on the weekends. Doing no more high school things was just something I was willing to give up. While the sacrifices athletes make for the sake of competing effectively shouldn't go without some level of admiration from all of us, let's not miss the inescapable fact that those sacrifices, ultimately speaking, have no eternal consequences whatsoever, have no eternal value. 
For the Apostle Paul and for all Christians, there's a greater prize that we press on towards. We don't compete for merely the admiration of man or for a perishable medal. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul is so resolute in his quest for this prize. Listen to the way he documents his sacrifices in Philippians 1 verse 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is Paul's mission statement. It's his anthem, his battle cry. He is absolutely sold out and completely engaged in that pursuit of Christ. I want to ask us all here this morning, what are we absolutely sold out for, single-mindedly in white-hot pursuit of, without any reservations in our lives? This morning I'm going to invite everyone to turn to Philippians chapter 3 in your Bible, today's text. Philippians chapter 3. I'll give you just another moment to turn there. Philippians chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 to verse 14 and then concentrate on verses 7 to 14 for the sermon. But again, Philippians chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray now as we turn to your word 
that you would open us to your word, open your word to us, grant your spirit to illuminate the word of God, to magnify your name, and to sanctify our souls. Father, I pray that you would accomplish something significant here in the lives of all who are here. We pray you would grant new life where it is needed. We pray that you would encourage where it is needed. Father, fill me with your spirit to be your instrument. And I pray that, as your word says, that I would decrease so that you might increase. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we begin, we'll look at our first point that you have there in your outline. Counting all things lost because Christ is better. Counting all things lost because Christ is better. Now, if anyone had an impressive spiritual resume, folks, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul himself basically says just that when in verse 4 he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, let's face it, we tend to dislike the person who likes to gloat over themselves or speak about their own accomplishments. But that is, in fact, what the Apostle Paul is doing here. But he's got a point. The law, being an institution built on externals, allowed one to build up bragging rights, didn't it? Under the law, you can build up bragging rights because it's built on your accomplishments. Paul, who kept the law perfectly, was, in fact, the shining star in terms of upward mobility in the religious ranks of his day, so he had gained those bragging rights through a lot of his own blood, sweat, and tears. His list of achievements was, in fact, impressive. As he continues in verse 5 and 6, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Well, now, after all that, you want to shout, okay, Paul, we get it. You don't have to rub it in our faces. You're better than we are. You've accomplished a whole lot more than us. You've excelled far past us in this race for your religious works. All right, don't rub it in. Leave us alone. We're second rate. We know it. You're the top dog, the big kahuna. So, after Paul recites that long list of accomplishments... You'd want to ask him, but Paul, you're sitting here bragging on yourself. You accomplished all these great things we wish we could have done. We'd like to be where you are. Paul, are you out of your mind? Why are you turning your back on everything you've accomplished? And everything you know you've accomplished because you just told us you did. You almost want to caution Paul not to throw it all away, right? After all, that's what we're conditioned to be for. To be all about accomplishments, to being the best of the best, to out-competing one another. That's what's instilled in us in our culture. So what is this crisis point that's come in Paul's life? What caused Paul, having attained so much by outward appearances, to turn his back on it all? To simply, one day, walk away from it? Well, Paul is quite unapologetic about it when he says this. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's it right there. Those two short sentences 
contained the reason why Paul had turned his back on something he'd spent his entire life seeking to achieve. Or better yet, what caused Paul to turn his back on the American dream of his day was one spontaneous encounter on the road to Damascus with Jesus of Nazareth in Acts chapter 9. Christ, my friends, is the answer. Christ was the answer to Paul's radical transformation. Christ is our answer today. And by the way, just in case we didn't hear what Paul said in verse 7 about, but he's counting all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ, he repeats it in verse 8. Verse 8 is a repetition of verse 7. However, uh, there is in fact an important, very important shift between verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, he's talking about past tense, his conversion experience in Acts chapter 9, where he says, I counted, past tense, all things lost. He repeats pretty much the same thing in verse 8, but if you're not careful, you miss the fact that when he says in verse 8, I count all things lost, that's now present tense. In other words, Paul is saying what took place on that road to Damascus was so dramatic, he made the decision to turn his back on it all, and each and every day now, he still counts it lost. He's pressing on. He's concentrating on his present. Paul fully recognizes that having considered the implications of Christ's claim on his life, that he must now, daily, in the here and now, consider the implications of what it means to follow Christ in every activity of his life. Receiving Christ as Lord over our lives through the act of saving faith necessarily has ongoing implications, doesn't it, for our lives. Saving faith is not just a one-time decision made in the past, Paul makes clear that the past act of inviting Christ in our hearts has real moral implications in the here and now. So Paul was not resting his present level of assurance of his salvation solely on that past act, that, that encounter on the road to Damascus. He was also looking to the fruit in his life today as being evidence of what took place back then. He was actively, as Philippians says, In the previous chapter, he was actively working out his salvation on a daily basis and placing the burden of his evidence not just on the past decision, but on what his life looks like today and how the two come together. Now, Paul actually gives us a paradigm to follow in this. None of us should rely solely on a decision for Christ made in the past in isolation of the evidence of our lives today. It's our current life testimony that gives any validity to our past confession of accepting Christ as Savior. Once we're saved, which is in fact a point-in-time decision, we come to a point in our lives and accept Christ into our hearts, that same grace that saves us empowers us and goes with us daily to cause us to bear fruit in our lives daily. We never leave behind saving grace. And we can sometimes be in error of doing that, because after all, we give it this name, saving grace. It points to the back. But saving grace goes with us. Saving grace is necessarily also sanctifying grace. Let's return to verse 8. So what Paul, what it is that has caused Paul to consider all his accomplishments as loss was that one encounter with this man, Jesus of Nazareth. There was, in fact, great value involved. 
Paul had accomplished so many things in his past. He assembled this, this great shining resume, yet Paul goes on to say, but I've counted all things lost for what? For the knowledge of knowing Christ? For the idea of knowing Christ? For the potential of knowing Christ? No, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. No matter what Paul had accomplished in his life, and believe me, he accomplished it all, it all paled into significance to that one encounter that we all have also with Christ when we meet him through saving faith. The worth, the value, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ for us far outweigh any of our own purported righteous deeds attempting to earn our way to God. Christ, my friends, is better. He is so much better. And Paul came to that conclusion. Well, Paul is not only regularly counting all things lost, but also Christ, or excuse me, he's counting all things lost because Christ is better, but also, secondly in your outline, Paul is counting all things lost to be found in Christ. Counting all things lost to be found in Christ. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, when I came to this portion of the text, verses 8 to 11, if you've ever read that and you're looking at it right now and you think, wow, it's kind of hard to unpack what Paul is really getting at here. There seems to be a lot in those verses, verses 8 to 11. You'd be right. Verses 8 to 11 in the Greek is actually one very long sentence. So what Paul does is he's getting so carried away about speaking about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ in an experiential, a deeply personal way, that he can't help but go on about what it's meant to him. So verses 8 to 11, again, one long sentence in the Greek, so it can be a little hard to unpack. But if we just look at the two main ideas there, those phrases, suffer the loss of all things, and then counting them as rubbish, are his two main thoughts. We're going to take both of those together. Uh, That's, in fact, what Paul does anyway. He strings them together with that word and. So although suffering the loss of all things and counting them as rubbish have two different facets, they are ultimately speaking, in Paul's mind, connected because that's what what he's doing here. Now, that word for rubbish is a very strong and offensive word in the Greek. It's literally the word for garbage, for dung, fecal matter. Paul's transformation in his life is so life-altering that he can't help but get unapologetically graphic in his language to describe what Christ has meant to him and what, it turns out, everything else he had accomplished really was at the end of the day. It was nothing. It was dung. It was garbage to him. Once you gaze on the surpassing worth of Christ, nothing else matters. So Paul is willing to count all his achievements as fecal matter for the sake of a greater goal. To gain Christ and to be found in him. To gain Christ and to be found in him is Paul's new passion. It is his resolute journey he is on. He's no longer talking about his past conversion experience. 
He's talking about what he desires now as a result of that in the here and now. A decision for Christ brings about daily moral choices that need to be made in all of our lives. These daily moral choices are not what saves us. They are the fruit that points to our salvation. We obey and follow Christ only because we have already pursued and apprehended him in saving faith. Let me say that again. We obey and follow Christ daily in the here and now only because we have already pursued and apprehended him through saving faith. There are a few people in the history of the Christian church who personally have inspired me in my daily devotional walk like A.W. Tozer. Many of you know that name, A.W. Tozer. Tozer was an American pastor and teacher who reached the apex of his ministry excuse me, in the 50s and 60s. Tozer wrote uh, quite a few devotional books, one of which was called The Pursuit of God, which I highly recommend to all of you here. In that book, Pursuit of God, Tozer talks about a concept he calls the soul's paradox of love. Have you ever heard that? The soul's paradox of love. And what he's seeking to communicate in that phrase is the biblical pattern that those who have apprehended Christ continue to pursue and apprehend more of Christ daily. Again, those who have apprehended Christ continue to pursue and apprehend Christ, more of Christ daily. So it's both. Yes, we accept Christ in that act of saving faith, but daily we go on apprehending, learning more about him. Now, I think this paradox is found right here in today's text, and in fact, it helps us understand what Paul is getting at more fully. One of the seemingly contradictory elements here in Philippians 3 is, in fact, the language that Paul uses himself. We're conditioned to think that once we made a decision for Christ, there's nothing else we need to do, right? We need not rest on anything else but our past decision as evidence that we belong to God. But Paul here blows that out of the water by placing emphasis on his current manner of life, his current decisions, what he's doing today. In one sense, Paul has already gained Christ and is, in fact, found in him. So what Paul is saying in the text those two twin elements, he wants to, be, to gain Christ and be found in him. There is a sense in which those are true of all of us in the act of salvation. But because of that soul's paradox of love that we see in Scripture, once we've apprehended, we go on continuing daily apprehending more until Christ returns. When you think about it, it's actually very wise of our Heavenly Father to make to make the Christian life that way, isn't it? Knowing that we are, in fact, frail and feeble people. We struggle. We're often downcast, given to depression, so on and so forth. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has made apprehending Christ an ongoing pursuit to give us something to continue to seek daily, keeping our eyes on him. So, I think it was Matthew Henry, best known for his commentaries of Scripture, who said this, True saving grace desires more grace. 
Again, true saving grace desires more grace. We should not rest in our past confession of Christ as Savior to be the only evidence we're saved. Rather, are we persevering today? I don't know about many of you, but my own personal uh, testimony of coming to saving faith in Christ, I can't remember an exact day or time. Many of us, are, our testimonies are, are like that. I cannot point to the exact day or time or location where I prayed to receive Christ as Savior. But after that period in my life in which I, I could tell that Christ had done something in me, granted me new life, it was my ongoing to d- desire to get to know him more that helped me understand that I had come to saving faith in him. So true saving grace desires more grace. My friends, let, let me encourage all of us to be a people who desire more of Christ daily. May we be a people who pursue Christ daily, who in white-hot pursuit of more, as Scripture says, of those treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are bound up in Christ. There are treasures awaiting for us in Christ daily if we seek Him. Elsewhere, the Scriptures talk about how all things have been given to us in saving faith. All things. So, third, in your outline, counting all things lost for the sake of a greater goal. Our third point, counting all things lost for the sake of a greater goal. Now, please look at your outline. I know there's a mistake there. So, correct it how you will, but let me give you the the point as it should be. Point number three should read, counting all things lost for the sake of a greater goal. What is that greater goal in Paul's life? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul now gets to his goal of his great sacrifice, and that is he wants to know Christ. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to become more like Christ, be united to Christ in his death and resurrection. So having this ultimate, or excuse me, having this intimate knowledge of Christ that Paul refers to throughout the chapter as being of surpassing worth leads to a greater goal. Knowing Christ on an experiential level in the here and now, and by experiential level, I mean experience. Knowing Christ by experience, relating to Christ intimately cultivating that relationship. Knowing Christ on an experiential level in the here and now, in our lives, individually and corporately, is not all there is to the gospel. Paul's end goal here is to attain the resurrection from the dead. As we get to know Christ more, we begin to value him more, we want to press on more and press on for that goal That Paul says here, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. His ongoing pursuit of Christ for Paul will usher in eternity. The path of discipleship 
my friends, for the Christian is necessarily through an intimate knowledge of the Lord. It's through cultivating that relationship, experience his power in us daily when we have troubles, when we need him to go to him daily, to be united with him when suffering comes and becoming like him in his death. These are the path through which one day we hope to receive a physical resurrection from the grave and to hear that incredible phrase one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. The power wrought by Christ's resurrection was not just enough to grant new life to a sinner. It's the same power that sanctifies us. It's the same power we have at our disposal to persevere to the end, as Scripture tells us. Now, to share his sufferings, literally, that phrase, to share his sufferings there in the verse, in the Greek, is literally the fellowship of his suffering. Now, it's very countercultural for us to contemplate, but there is, in fact, value for the Christian in embracing suffering and learning from it when it comes in our lives. Not avoiding it or downplaying it, but embracing it, understanding it, seeking what God is seeking to accomplish in our lives through it. That is what Paul is getting at in his statement, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul wants to come to Christ in his own sufferings and also be more united, better understand what sufferings Christ went through on his behalf. So Paul is talking about a Godward view of suffering. He's talking about redeeming suffering for the sake of becoming more like Christ. In times of our own suffering, we have a unique opportunity, my friends, to unite with Jesus. Understanding more fully the extent to which he suffered in his own reconciliation, excuse me, his own reconciliation ministry on our behalf. So, though it sounds odd to say, there is, in fact, redeeming value to our suffering. There is redeeming value to our suffering. Rather than balk at suffering when it comes in our lives and seek to look the other way, the Christian should embrace it, pray for wisdom in it, and allow it to draw us closer to our Savior. Remembering those precious words in Hebrews 12, 4, we have not yet suffered to the point of bloodshed. Now, maybe this morning you find yourself struggling with illness that won't relent. Maybe you find yourself in a difficult personal relationship that seems constantly filled with strife and wrong emotions. Maybe you're struggling with a sense of depression over a life filled with professional or personal disappointments. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever circumstances are difficult for you, Not only are you not alone in your sufferings, but it's a unique opportunity to grow more intimately united with Jesus, the Jesus that suffered on every level to express his deep love for you and for me. My friends, Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about how he became like us, took on flesh and blood, lived among us, suffered so that he might know that he might be a pure and perfect high priest for us, that he might know how we suffer. And my friends, it is a love that Jesus has for us. It will be a companion and guide through our struggles. So we are not alone in our sufferings. Go to Christ, reach out for Christ in whatever you're suffering here this morning. 
Christ is there. He suffered infinitely more than we ever have and ever will. That he might know how to help us in our time of need. Well, Paul, through this dramatic encounter, is counting all things lost because Christ is better. He's counting all things lost to be found in Christ. He's counting all things lost for the sake of a greater goal. Now he's going to turn to the practical implications in verses 12 and following in the text. Which is our fourth point. Counting all things lost to press on towards the prize. Here in this final section of the passage, Paul gets to his future. In other words, when the passage began, when he's rehearsing his spiritual resume, Paul is talking about his past. And then he said, I, count, I counted all things lost, referring to the conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He then transitions in verse 8, talks about the present. Everything there is in present tense. In other words, the implications that past decision has for him today. Well, now in verses 12 and following, he's looking to the future, to the goal. The goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is what Paul is going to spend the rest of his life pursuing. Or to say it another way, this is the practical application that Paul is seeking to leave us with coming out of this text. Paul's, this is Paul's aspirations for his future. It's his personal mission statement. It's important to note, by the way, the way in which he opens this section is not intended to convey doubt in Paul. When Paul says, not that I've already obtained it, or again in verse 13, but I do not consider that I've made it my own. Paul's not seeking to convey doubt or that he doesn't know that he's saved or that he may have lost his salvation. All Paul is trying to convey here is humility. Remember, Paul's, Paul always viewed himself as unworthy of his calling. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Paul said these famous words, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Paul is simply communicating, conveying a right response of humility in these verses. It was a healthy understanding of his own unworthiness to possess Christ that spurred Paul on in his pursuit of Christ. In other words, when we began to understand how we're not deserving of this saving grace, uh, of new life, it spurs us on want to apprehend it more. This radical pursuit of Christ can only best be described by the apostle in this section by the repeated use of athletic metaphors. Now, Paul, throughout his writings, is given to athletic metaphors. So stay where you're at, but you can write these down. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, and I won't read all, all the verses. In 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So Paul is thinking of a wrestling match there. Acts 20, verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says these famous words at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. Write that one down as well. First Corinthians 9, 25 to 27, he says this. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Once Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, there was no turning back for him. Paul knew for sure that it was only Jesus who truly had the goods. And that nothing could ever compare to knowing Christ, to knowing him more, to be being engaged in a white hot pursuit of all that Jesus has for him. Here in Philippians chapter three, this rigorous pursuit he's in is communicated throughout. So, for instance, Paul uses the word loss three times in referring to what he turned his back on for the sake of gaining Christ. He talks about great loss three different times whether it's the phrase counted as loss or suffered the loss. His decision for Christ has deeply impacted him, has cost him greatly. Here in verse 12, Paul also uses the phrase press on two different times, which is intended to convey the expenditure of great physical energy from the apostle and what he's seeking to do. The word straining that you have there in verse 13 is an athletic metaphor of a runner who's approaching the finish line, and who is straining every muscle in his body for the sake of crossing the line. So Paul is fully engaged here. The self-denial that Paul is clearly referring to for the sake of gaining Christ is rare in our own age. Our own age today, it's very me-centered, very geared towards building up our own self-image and our own credibility in our own eyes. It's a very me-centered age. But Paul, on the other hand, had no such false thinking. He cared not about what the world thought of him. He cared not what the world thought about his radical change. And he cared not about the severe loss that he had encountered. Nor did he care about what must have been a great deal of personal scorn from all his companions, all his religious companions of the day. Paul only cared about pleasing Christ and being found faithful in Christ at the end of the age, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. This type of self-sacrifice, self-denial and kingdom orientation is how Jesus sums up the essence of discipleship in the Gospels, right? So, for instance, in Mark 8, 34 to 36, Jesus says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels We'll save it. For what does it profit a man man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? If we take up our crosses and run in such a way as to win the prize together, we need to be willing to count all our efforts at self-righteousness as dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in him. And that's the essence of what Paul is talking about here in this text. That's the reason why he starts out with his spiritual resume. Paul's not necessarily talking about vocation choices all of us may make. Paul is talking about very specifically, he was using his religious achievement, achievements to make himself right with God in terms of salvation. And then, when he met Christ, he understood all those attempts were nothing. Martin Luther, that great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, struggled personally himself with many attempts at self-righteousness. 
Many of you may or may not know, Luther actually spent five years of his life as an Augustinian monk in a monastery. And it was alleged that during this period in his life, not only did he engage in many monastic attempts at ascetic lifestyles, in other words, beating his body to make himself right before God, it was also alleged that during this period in Luther's life, he journeyed, he actually journeyed to the headquarters of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. And as an act of penance, as a Roman Catholic monk, he climbed on his knees the 28 marble steps that led up to the praetorium of Pilate's residence where Christ purportedly stood when Pilate passed judgment on Jesus. Now Luther, looking back on all these attempts to gain his own righteousness, to make himself right before God, Luther commented this. If anyone could have gained heaven as a monk, then I would certainly have done so. If anyone could have gained heaven as a monk, then I would certainly have done so. Well, if you're here today and you're attempting to earn your way to heaven through your righteous deeds, you need to come to the same point that the Apostle Paul came to in his life and the point where he found himself after his conversion. We need to be willing to count all such efforts at self-righteousness as worthless compared to a much greater worth. I'm very influenced by a pastor named John Piper. I love the way he preached on this text. His title of that text was The Treasure That Makes All Other Treasures Garbage. The Treasure That Makes All Other Treasures Garbage. My friends, Jesus is that priceless treasure. He makes everything else garbage. Whatever we attempt to offer up, it's garbage compared to just simply knowing Christ and being found in him having his righteousness imputed to us so that we can be empowered to run for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's together count all things lost for the sake of gaining Christ together as a body of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, May it be so with us. May we be individually and corporately as a body of believers this resolute in our quest for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May we be so in love with Christ Jesus who saved us, who poured us out of the pit and crowned us with loving kindness. May we now be engaged by that same saving faith that saves us. It now empowers us. May we harness that grace to persevere to the end and to be found faithful at the end of the age when Jesus comes back to call his bride to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.